Tattooing and body modification have been around as long as we can trace human civilization. And for some, it may have been a badge of honor for an accomplishment. For others, the mark of belonging to a certain tribe. But for modern man, what's the motivation? Is it the same thing, just belonging to a particular group? Or showing that one doesn't belong to a particular group? Or is it just artistic self-expression? And when does the urge to modify one's appearance in the name of beauty or novelty become an unhealthy obsession? On this episode of The Arthropologist, I have clinical psychologist Dr. David Elkin with me to try and address some of these questions. David, thank you for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. First of all, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I am a clinical child and adolescent psychologist. I work at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Uh, specifically, I'm the executive director for the Center for Advancement of Youth, um, CAY, we just call it K, um, which is a, um, a center that it's, brings professionals from both departments of psychiatry and pediatrics to work with kids and adolescents with developmental, emotional, behavioral issues. Oh, wow. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Would you very quickly clarify what's the difference for the audience between a psychologist and a, and a psychiatrist? Sure. A psychiatrist has a medical degree. So a psychiatrist is an MD, a physician. And a psychologist has a PhD usually or um, PsyD or other degrees and is not a physician. And therefore, um, psychologists uh, in most states are not um, allowed to prescribe, which is just fine with me. I don't want to write prescriptions. I'd rather my physician colleagues take that on. Okay. All right. Um, For those who aren't aware, tattooing and extreme body modification is a rapidly growing phenomenon in the West. When I was a boy in the 60s, only a few groups had tattoos. Inmates, biker gangs, maybe some sailors and people in the military, and what we referred to back in the 60s and 70s as circus freaks. And that was it. And tattoo parlors were few and far between and only located in the seedy parts of town. But today in the U.S., about 42% of the population is reported to have tattoos. And body modifications like piercings, scarification, and for those who don't know, scarification is literally cutting into the body with different instruments, creating patterns, I guess, and leaving those scars to be decorative. And then amputations, literally cutting off parts of a person's body to look like something else. That didn't exist in the 60s, maybe in the pages of National Geographic, but that was it. So let's start from there. First of all, what just in general, just for people who get tattoos and stuff, what what's the motivation in your understanding behind that? Um, to be quite honest, I think they are as varied as the individuals who get tattoos and do body modification. I think they're probably, to say that there's one you know, motivation is probably um, a misnomer, uh, or not a misnomer, um, you know, not a, a good way to put it. But um, I think that people in general um, are looking for ways to, to um, identify themselves and say, this is who I am and this is not who I am, as you said at the very beginning. Um, and I think that tattoos and body modification 
um, represent uh, a very visible way of doing that. You know, they've always been sort of edgy, right? Like you said, uh, tattoo parlors were in seedy parts of town, that kind of stuff. And so, you know, there was sort of an edgy nest to it that some people started adopting. Um, because I think it sort of um, was a way of saying that I'm not part of the in crowd. However, once people start seeing others do it, then it becomes very much of the in crowd. <laughs> people start doing it more and more and more, and more people do it. I mean, I think especially when you see it in um, sports figures um, uh, and um, you know movie actors, that kind of stuff, then it becomes much more sort of acceptable. And if not acceptable, then sort of almost a part of um, some people. They have to do it in order to to, to be to fit in, which is intri- intriguing to me about you know. The idea of fitting in versus not fitting right. in. Right, and I have listened for those who want to know in my research. I have listened to probably fifty to seventy-five different interviews and podcasts of people who are uh, either tattoo artists, body modification, if you want to call them artists, and people who are in in that world, and. Uh, you know, when you're talking about being in or out of the in crowd, one of the some of the tattoo artists were asked, you know, why is scarification and full body suits uh, and full sleeves, why are those growing? And they said, well, you know, 25, 30 years ago, just getting a tattoo made you edgy. But now that 42% of the population does, that's not edgy anymore. So you have to get a full sleeve or a full bodysuit. Uh, and for those, again, who aren't in that world, a, a, a full sleeve is just what it sounds like. It's tattooed from the, sh- from the shoulder to the wrist, full bodysuit, just like it sounds like, from the neck down to the feet and everything in between, or most everything in between. And they said that, you know, that's where scarification and piercings and all that is just growing and growing is because it's gotten so outrageous even in their own words kind of so out there that in order to become edgy you just have to keep pushing that envelope so um, I, I think it's getting to the point where the edgy people are people like me that I don't have any tattoos so I don't pierce anything either um, so uh, but and and so that everyone understands, we're not talking about the person who has one or two tattoos or something like that, or maybe you've had your eyebrow pierced or something. There is a world out there where people are just going beyond anything you can imagine. I mean, putting big disc for holes through their mouth where you can actually see through their mouth as if you would want to do that, but that's what they do. People who are cutting off their ears, their noses, their fingers and toes so that they can morph their body into uh, different looks. And that's where I started trying to figure out, okay, I can understand someone getting a few tattoos or something, but what's going on when people are going that far? Um, and where do we draw the line? So, uh, David, where would you draw the line between, okay, this is kind of a hobby or whatever, and now we're getting into some unhealthy obsession territory? Yeah, it's, it's a very murky line for me. I don't know exactly how to um, call that you know, nice and um, 
clean and crisp. However, what, what this sort of puts to my mind is, um, I'm not saying this is an addiction, but you know, one of the definitions of addiction is you have to have uh, tolerance and withdrawal, meaning um, it takes more and more of that substance to achieve the same effect. And when you remove the substance, there are withdrawal effects. Okay, so forget the withdrawal part, right? Um, but it seems like what we're headed for some people, um, let's just use alcohol, for example. Some people can, you know, for the rest of their life, um, have one glass of wine a, a night, and that's fine, or maybe two. Um, and some people go, you know, a smaller portion can't stop. They have to have more and more and more until they get in trouble, right? And we call those people substance abusers. Um, so I think it's, it's almost kind of similar parallel track, if you will. Some people can get one or two tattoos or get their eyebrow pierced, as you said, or their nose pierced, and that's fine, right? That's the equivalent of, of a, a glass of wine a night. Some people keep going. And in my mind, it's sort of the same thing. Um, I don't want to say that there's an addictive personality, um, but maybe some people just can't. There is no line. There, there is no ceiling on where to stop. And so they continue way off into the, the fringes, as you're saying, about some very extreme uh, body modifications. Right, right. And I hope not to jump around too much. I'm sort of looking at my notes. And th this was such a fascinating subject that I just, it was hard to wrap my head around everything. But the one thing I will say from an artistic standpoint is that uh, I like some tattoos. I think they're really pretty. Uh, for those who don't know, back again in the 60s and 70s, there was really only two types of tattoos. You had the traditional tattoos, which were heavily graphic, heavy outlines. And then uh, in the East, in the Orient, you had the uh, Japanese, Chinese, mostly Japanese, I guess, uh, style of tattooing. And today there's just a vast world. You've got miniatures, you've got watercolor, you've got so many things. But frankly, I don't consider what most people are doing who are getting tattoos to be artistic because it's just random. It's thoughtless. It's just without direction. It's just sticking stuff on themselves, almost like they're a wall and a, gra a graffiti artist is just coming along randomly putting something up there. And uh, this is not my words. I listened to a lot of professional tattoo artists who said anyone who's got more than three tattoos uh, regrets one of them. They will look and go, God, that was stupid. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. And again, that's not my words. That's their words. And these are people who are covered and they would be pointing and going, yeah, I got that when I was 18. That was just really dumb. And uh, so, so that's where for me, I look at so much and I go, you know, that's not really artistic. That's just kind of uh, Almost like you'd say this is a first world problem. Too much money, too much time, and not enough real world challenges so that you go and modify yourself without really thinking about, you know what, this is kind of permanent. It's interesting that you should say that. I think that what we're also dealing with culturally is the emergence and triumphant uh, march of an identity culture, right? So we're living in a culture where you have to, um, in a sense, claim or declare or um, even regale others with your identity. Um, so you can take that in terms of uh, gender, sexuality. You take that in terms of um, profession. You know, what do you do? Um, and I think that tattoos are a way of sort of another sort of offshoot of that identity yeah. culture. 
um, where this is, this is my idea. This is who I am. This is my, you know, to quote the Nicholas Cage character, um, you know, I, with his shark skin jacket, I, I think this is a, um, a mark of my individual freedom and that kind of stuff. This, this is who I am. And I, I am expressing myself this way. And that you hear undertones of that in a bunch of other, um, I guess, venues of modern culture and life yeah, in the I, West. I, I, was think, I was thinking about that. It seems to me that we've lost a lot of the sense of being in a particular tribe because we're so able to reach out so far to so many people, especially with the Internet. And there now seems to be two extremes where either people want to be an extreme individual or at, have this at one with all menta- uh, mankind mentality. And the problem I see with that is that on the one hand, we are social animals and crave being part of a group. And then on the other hand, these people who say they want to be just, you know, I'm just human, a part of the human family, you know, that's really abstract and kind of overwhelming when you think about 7 billion people. Can you really be at one with 7 billion people? And it just seems to me that uh, with the culture wars going on and everything, that there's just a a sense of lostness and searching for meaning in life. And especially in the West with the loss of organized religion, so many people who when they talk about tattooing, body modification, they talk about searching for higher meaning, something beyond themselves that's more spiritual, and they seem to be searching for it in ways that's modifying their bodies. Correct. I think it's gone beyond um, sort of a tattoo, let's just say a tattoo, um, being a reminder of something, like, you know, the old mom in a heart on the forearm of a sailor, you know, or um, your your wife or girlfriend's name tattooed on your heart. I mean, there is something there that's sort of a um, a token, a reminder, right? I have a good friend who um, has a tattoo on the back of his, on his triceps, um, that is the the course outline of a of a long run he did, right? And it's a reminder. I did that huge run, and, and I just wanted to remind myself and sort of you know it, it, it's a badge in a sense, right? So that that's different. Um, I think that what we're moving into with some of the body modification, especially, is um, perhaps beyond all that, <laughs> like you said, and it's sort of um, it's sort of I guess depressing. Well. You know? uh, Along those same lines, I was wondering then, are the people who, you know, get caught up in this, are they in, a, in an echo chamber sort of surrounding themselves with people who are re- reinforcing what they already believe? Or are they people who are kind of lost and they get caught up in, in an Internet group that are doing things they would never have, especially kids, things you'd have never thought about uh ever i mean i think i I think that it's an interesting point i think that we are living in a time um this is a a, sounds like a terrible way to start a conversation but um remember i guess two sort of mile markers in my mind are from the late 19th century and the french impressionist painting uh, painters and their motto in French was "Épater la bourgeoisie," you know, shock the right. middle class, right? "Épater la bourgeoisie," and now we have 
oh, years ago now, but remember the band from L.A., yes. James Addiction? The name, of the, one of their albums, the name of the one of their albums was Nothing Shocking. And I think those are two interesting mile markers in um, Western culture where, you know, people are still trying to live under the epithelial bourgeoisie, you know, shock the middle class. But here's James Addiction years ago saying, you can't. <laughs> you can't go far enough. Nothing is shocking anymore. And so even if you put a hole in your mouth, people go, oh, that's cool. You know, how about that? You can put false horns under, you know, on your scalp, on your head. People go, oh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, cool. But you can't go far enough to shock, even though you may want to shock. And I think those are very interesting sort of um, okay. um, mile markers. Yeah. Um, okay. I made a list of three different uh, personalities that I was seeing. Again, I have spent the past month listening to podcasts as I'm in my studio working uh, of people who are for and against. And mostly it was just uh, people who are heavily involved in the tattooing and body modification world. And I sort of began seeing a pattern. But again, I don't want to say that's everybody, certainly, because we are talking about the extremes in this. We're not, again, we're not talking about people who have one or two tattoos. Um, so let me let me sort of list these three and uh, what, I, what I saw in them. And then tell me if I'm uh, oversimplifying or kind of focusing too much on a few people. Um, the first type of person I've been seeing is what I was call, I would call the prophet. And they're the people trying to win others over to their movement. They'll say that, you know, society is filled with drones, conditioned to blend in with the crowd, and that and the body modification prophet's going to lead the poor deluded masses into enlightenment and freedom. Uh, that's one kind of person that I would see that was just so passionate about, you know, separating from the masses and, and moving into this world. Um, the other type is very interesting. I, I would call the self-righteously indignant. So they're doing everything in their power to be as offensive and shocking as possible. You know, putting tattoos on their face that were most people would find offensive because of the symbology or the wording, but then they would be outraged that people are judging them for being offensive. Um, and then lastly right. is the contrarian. And they're just arguing just to argue. Um, what was so interesting, I listened to a number that uh, they were, they, they would claim to have this hatred for humanity. You know, they love animals, they love Mother Earth, but humanity is sort of a cancer on the planet and they're really more at one with uh, uh, the animal kingdom and yet they're totally outraged with racism and sexism and any kind of ism but interestingly every podcast they would end with bye love you guys don't forget to subscribe so they've just spent the past 45 minutes talking about how they hate everybody but then at the end love you guys y'all take care don't forget to subscribe Am I just sort of oversimplifying, or is that just happened to be the people I was logging on to? I don't know. That That's a good question. I don't know if it's an oversimplification or not. Those are interesting categories, and I think you can drop a lot of folks into those categories. I don't know if it covers the whole you know, spectrum uh, of perspectives, but those are interesting uh, okay. things to consider. All right. Well, I, like I said, I just... Um, 
that seemed to be where a lot of people were falling. Um, now, I have listened to a number of podcasts, and when I say podcasts, I also mean YouTube channels, dealing with uh, tattoo regrets. And what was very interesting is how blasé so many people are about, especially tattoos, that they think, oh, well, I'll just get them removed. And I found out that, I mean, you can remove move them to a certain extent, but mostly it's to a ghost image. So it's not like you're going to totally get rid of it. You're going to cloud it down, usually so that you can put something else on top of it. But the idea of going back to pristine skin, that's really not happening. And a number, I remember a couple of different women that I listened to. One of them said she had spent two years and thousands of dollars to remove just a few tattoos from her head and or from her forehead and she said there's all there's going to be this modeled ghost image left that I can never get rid of but her problem is she's like 40 years old now 35 years old she can't get dates men don't find her attractive and she's terrified of being alone for the rest of her life Okay, now, and okay, this is shallow, I know, but I pride myself on being a bit shallow. To a certain extent, it's like, well, if you're ugly, okay, go ahead and do whatever, you're ugly anyway. But it shocks me how many gorgeous women are tattooing themselves, especially their faces. And I'm sitting there going, you know what? I think you're going to regret this eventually because you're not improving. You're only kind of, uh, detracting from your beauty what happens okay you're a counselor someone comes in and goes I've, I've just re- wrecked my life I've, my face has piercings and tattoos and I can only partially repair them men don't find me attractive or women don't find me attractive what do I do how do I live my life now that it's going to be very hard to get someone of the opposite sex to pay attention to me and, and, and love me. How do you counsel somebody like that? Uh, this is great because I think that, um, well, first of all, you know, I'm in, <laughs> I see kids and adolescents. So a lot of the people I see aren't falling into that category, but um, uh, it doesn't stop me from speaking. It's Arcalion, <laughs> does it? Um, <laughs> um, but I think that um, this is, yeah, I'm in the people change business. Um, so I believe people can change. That's why I do what I do. Um, and I think that this is where, um, you know, you might say religion in general, but Christianity in specific, um, comes in and says, absolutely, you can change. There's hope for everyone. Uh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about, you know, what you can do. Let's talk about how you see yourself. And, you know, in a sense, you get people to take their eyes off themselves. Um, and you, people get their identity elsewhere um, in Christianity. You know, there is no there is no adjective in front of Christian, right? So there is no male Christian or female Christian or anything like that, or black Christian or white Christian or tattooed Christian or not tattooed Christian. You are right. Where the Apostle Paul writes, um, "There's neither and, Greek nor Roman, barbarian or Scythian, male or female. Exactly. But we are Christ is all in all." And that's your identity. And I think that's where you point someone is outside of this. Um, the, the, the thing they've been seeking is identity elsewhere. And you want to say, it's, it's empty. You're not going to find it until you come here. Um, 
Now, others may disagree, and, and others that hear this podcast may think that that's you know, a very shallow way of looking at things, and Christianity uh, has a history of whatever, you know. But I think that's one of the points of perhaps all human questing, especially with religion. Um, you may say it's beyond just Christianity. Um, that's the point, is that you are part of a group, right? Um, and so if you're seeking to be a part of a group other other than religiously, then I think all religions would argue that you're chasing after a puff of smoke, right. you know? Right. And, and that's fantastic. You know, thinking outside of yourself, thinking of something beyond yourself, just as an aside, I have a brand new grandbaby, and what's so wonderful about having a grandchild is that it makes you think about someone other than yourself. You know, you're thinking about them and uh, being able to focus on her or as a Christian, thinking of my Lord and, and not, it's just not everything about me. It does help because you can get caught in your own depressive downward spiral of just focusing on yourself and your problems. And it's hard to break out of it because you can't think of anything but yourself. Correct. Exactly. Okay, now problem. Congratulations, congratulations, by the way. (laughs) Uh, Problem number two. And again, for those listening, this is not my words. These are, I'm I'm talking about listening to, I've probably listened to easily, easily, a hundred hours of podcasts of people in the body modification world. One woman I listened to, she talked about having, Uh, removed some of her tattoos and she said I was shocked at how angry people in the in the body modification world were at me because I was a traitor I had betrayed the cause and so she said what's real interesting is you go from being an outsider to the rest of the world because you're heavily modified But then if you decide, she said, I'm not abandoning the world. I love my tattoos. It's just I felt some of them had gone too far, and I wanted to remove some of them. Well, the the idea that she would remove any of them was an act of betrayal against her peers. And so now she said she feels like she's kind of caught in a limbo where she doesn't belong to, the let's say, the straight world, and she doesn't belong to the modified world. Where do I fit in? So, again, you've got someone with tattoo regrets. They come in and they say, now I don't belong to anybody. Where, where Does it go back to what you said originally? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, you would want to say to that person, oh, but you do. You can, you know. But it's interesting that people sort of see that as a betrayal because of the permanency, the perceived permanency of um, tattooing and body modification. This is a permanent thing. This is not a, I'm an Ole Miss fan now, and now I'm a state fan. You can't just switch sides, right? It's permanent because it's your identity, right? It's who you are. And so you can't say, I'm no longer homosexual, right? I am, but that's who you are. So it's a a, uh, big deal. Okay, now... This this will have to go a little bit di- different direction. How do you swallow your pride? Again, a couple of these women, one in particular was talking about, uh, well, no, actually a, a number of the women that have been uh, done body modification, mostly tattooing and piercings on their faces, 
and they would talk about, you know, I'm 36 now. When I was 18, my mother said, you're going to regret this. And it was very hard for me to do this and now face my mom, face my family, who for 20 years they said, you're going to regret it, you're going to regret it. Now I do, and it's kind of hard to swallow that pride and go, yeah, you were right. So, again, someone comes into your office and says, I, I'm just having trouble because it's a real bruise to my ego to admit that my old fuddy-duddy mom said, you're going to regret this, and now I do, and she was right, I was wrong. How do you counsel someone? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I hope that people who listen to this um, take the laughter that I just did um, in the right vein because part of me wants to say, welcome to adulting. You know, I think all of us who've reached a certain stage say, Oh, doggone it. You know, mom and dad are right all along. It, it, maybe not about tattoos, but about everything else, <laughs> you know, about, about jobs, about career, about marriage, about kids, about life. You know, when you're a teenager or a young person, you're like, you know, trying to be anything but specifically, I was going to be anything but a psychologist because my dad is a psychologist. I was never going to be a psychologist because I was going to do something different than my dad and look where I am. You know, it's very funny to me. And so I think all of us reach that point where you go, oh, yeah, they were right all along kind of stuff. And to me, this is just another one of those moments you sort of say, you know, all of us have to swallow our pride at some point. Um, All of us. I think that the mark of maturity, there are many marks of maturity in a human. You know, one is the ability to deny yourself, to say no to yourself. Another mark of maturity is the ability to admit what you don't know. You know, uh, the, the philosopher said the wise man knows what he doesn't know. Um, and you can say wise person. Um, but the wise person knows what he or she doesn't know. And as we get older, um, I think all of us sort of say, man, I just know less and less. And I think that's just a mark of maturity. Okay. That's all. And, you know, I appreciate how in a lot of ways how sort of comforting and easy you sort of made that where it was like you know welcome to the human race you have regrets and uh, you have to swallow your pride it's it's there's nobody alive that hasn't done that Uh, and that that makes you feel kind of good and you know I will tell everyone in the listening audience that uh, when I was young I considered that I had industrial strength stupidity uh, it just, when I think about the stupid things I did when I was a kid, I literally do thank God that I didn't live in today's world because, you know, frankly, when it, in, in 1968, 69, I'm like eight, nine years old, yeah, there was just a limit to how much trouble you could get yourself into. And today, young people can get themselves into so much more. And the other thing is that you can't cover it up as well. You know, nobody knows what I did in the 60s or 70s. There's no record of it. But, oh, my gosh, if you're 14 or 15 and you did something really dumb and it's on the Internet, that's tough. That's hard. Again, how do you counsel somebody that, okay, they've done something they really regret and it's on the Internet and it's, you can't get rid of it. What do you, how do you, how do you s- s- live with that? Um, 
very difficult, (laughs) very difficult. Um, because again, we are all counting on the forgetfulness of our fellow human beings, right? Um, we are counting, we're, 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 presuming upon the mercy of our fellow humans to be able to look back and go, Oh boy, I, I hope people forgot that when I said that or did that in college or, you know, I really hope that it goes away. And now we have a, you know, a permanency to all the things we, we've done. So I don't, I don't know a, a good answer to that. I think that you have to sort of trust in the grace and goodwill that we presumed upon in humanity and hope that others will forget. But, you know, things keep, being dug up on others all the time. You know, a text that somebody sent in 2001 or whatever it is, you know, you go, oh, wow. I don't think you could send text in 2001. Yeah. Sorry, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, this leads me to, uh, I'm so glad that you deal mostly with children because this next uh, section I want to talk about is how is the psychological community dealing with the logical and inevitable future of this movement. Here's where I'm going. We're moving at an incredible technological pace. Soon, I'll say soon, actually we are now splicing human and animal DNA together. And we recently, uh, doctors implanted a pig heart or something like that into a human. We're getting to the point where we are going to be able to implant not just human hearts, lungs, and livers, but tails and horns onto human beings. On top of, and splicing DNA where we will be able to grow fur, I guess, and scales. Couple that with the change that society has gone through in the past decade where people are self-identifying with other genders and other races, what about people who self-identify with other species? You've got people who are calling themselves tiger men and whatever. Um, And what about the repercussions for children? Because right now, again, you correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, children as young as four and five are receiving hormone blockers because they're saying, Mommy, I'm a little boy, or, and they were born a little girl, or vice versa. And the courts are stepping in and saying, you have to give them hormone-blocking treatments. Well, what do we do with Cobra Boy, the five-year-old who says, Mommy, I'm a cobra, and cobras don't have ears, noses, or lips, so I want them surgically removed. Or unicorn girl who wants a subdural surgical steel horn put in her head. I, I, I know this sounds absurd and ridiculous, but, you know, a few years ago, someone coming in and saying a five-year-old little boy can say I'm a little girl, and now he's receiving hormone-blocking treatment to permanently alter and probably sterilize him for the rest of his life. How is the psychological community dealing with, or is it even paying attention to where we're going with this? Um, so first of all, I, I'm unaware of those cases of four or five year olds getting hormone blocking uh, treatment. Um, so you, well, you know I more about say this than I do. I've, um, I haven't kept up with it real strongly, but as I understand, I was keeping up a little bit on the news, a divorced couple, they had, I believe a five year old little boy and the father, and this may have been in Canada, but anyway, 
a five-year-old little boy was saying, Mommy, I'm a little girl. And the mommy wanted to give her give him hormone-blocking treatments. The father sued to stop it. And as I understand, he lost. And uh, I'm seeing more and more about this. Even if I'm a little, even if I'm exaggerating a little bit, I don't think I am. But even if not, this is the direction we're going. How do we deal with this? Uh, you know, how do we deal with people who are self-identifying with animals? So, um, first of all, to answer your question, I'm not aware of how the psychological community as a whole is, as you say, keeping up with this or addressing this. You know, um, so I haven't seen any of that in practice. I haven't read about it in the literature. It's an interesting uh, situation, though. Um, I think that the way that um, national organizations would tend to approach this would be one of acceptance, obviously. Um, and looking at um, how it affects you know, mood, behavior, activities of daily living. So, you know, if you say I am uh, Cobra Man and I want to do this, this, and this, I think the larger society as a whole that we live in would say that's fine as long as it doesn't, you know, lead you to be suicidal, depressed, or lead you to affect other people. You can do your own thing. Um, just don't affect other people. But to answer your question, I, I don't think there's a lid anymore. I don't think, you know, Again, I go back to Jane's addiction. Nothing's shocking. So th there is no ceiling. There is no right. uh, limit anymore. And and some people see that as freedom. I think some people see that as tyranny, honestly. Since you're a psychologist, you're familiar with Jordan Peterson. Um, Jordan Peterson has these wonderful lectures about beauty and why especially men are so intimidated around beautiful women and some of his quotes are that beauty highlights what's ugly and beauty says you aren't what you should be so that if a you know a man come is a, around a, an exceptionally beautiful woman he feels very intimidated because he know he feels like well I don't live up to that standard do you agree with that does that make sense um, it's an interesting point. I, I know of Jordan Peterson, of course. Um, I, I think we're intimidated around beauty, um, but I think most men say, I, that's like a really nice watch. I'd like to have that, please. Yeah. You know, that's something I like to put in my, my trophy case, uh, which is very objectification of women. But as you were saying that, I was thinking um, um, of Gregory Maguire, who wrote all the um, – who wrote Wicked. He wrote these sort of different takes on um, uh, fairy tales. You know, Wicked, of course, is about the um, uh, witch of the Wicked Witch of the West. Um, but he did one um, on the Cinderella story, and it was set in um, like 1600s, 1700s Netherlands, and it was called Confessions of an Ugly Stepsister. And basically, it's the Cinderella story told from one of the stepsisters' perspective. And um, there's a line in that book called the line in the book where it, he says, "Extreme beauty is an affliction." Yeah, and that's a great – I remember that sentence when I read it because it was just a great summation. Um, extreme beauty is an affliction because we don't know what to do with it. You're exactly right. We don't know we're intimidated by it. We don't know how to approach it. We don't know how to talk to extreme beauty, male or female, or even art or even you know beauty in, in the natural world. I mean it's almost like we don't know what to do with it because it's just – extreme yeah. 
And I, I've always thought about that and pondered it. And so it, it sort of wedged itself into my mind. Sorry. Oh, no, that's fine. And, and I'm going in a direction with this. Also, he talks about art and beauty. He says, art is a window to the transcendent. Beauty is one pathway to God. And then lastly, without beauty, there's no call to higher being. The reason that I brought this up is that, you know, again, I said earlier, it's sort of a shallow thing to say, but, you know, if you're ugly, go ahead and scar and tattoo yourself. Who cares? You're already ugly. But Again, it just shocks me, these gorgeous women that will have tattoos all over their face or will put scars all over themselves. And, you know, I wonder, do they feel ugly inside? Do, are they, is, is, what would possess someone, because we know beauty when we see it. We know a beautiful woman or an incredibly handsome man when we see them. And and for someone to be there, to be a you know a ten or a nine, and then all of a sudden to mar it and to mess it up, what is that? Well, saying? I think they would say that they're not. I think they would say, and others would agree with them that they're not marring it or messing it up. This is who I am, and this is what I want to do. There's there's no marring. You know? Yeah. And so I think that's the that's the interesting perspective here to consider. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I would I would disagree, you know, but uh, I can I can understand that their their point. Um, and uh, I also find it interesting that when we talk about beauty being subjective, that it's really not in the sense that nobody celebrates someone having an arm six inches longer than the other one as being beautiful. There is a point, you know, basically human uh, symmetry in the human body and proportion in the human body are two standards that we sort of are universal even if it's slightly uh, uh, interpreted a little bit different it's still again nobody is looking and going oh wow I wish I had an arm six inches longer than the other one I think that there are some people that think that and I think that there are others that would take exception to that um, I think that there are some who would say, well, that argument was lost um, with the Impressionists and the Romantics. Um, that we, you know, that's out the window when you know when we start doing that. Um, that, that that was a, um, a post Enlightenment yeah. <laughs> sort of uh, argument that is uh, down the toilet. So I mean, someone would say, are you saying there's objective beauty, Bill? Uh, that's that is something that was you know. From the 1600s, we don't think that way anymore, you know. No. Um, and so I, I really do. I think that people honestly um, would would probably reject that, even though. And this is where I would I would agree with you, even though they probably adhere to those standards. Um, I don't want to say subconsciously, they they adhere to them. You know, they would they would they would recognize beauty when they see it in a sense, and it wouldn't just be because it, it's beautiful to them. They would recognize it, but I think that if you ask them. They would say that's so 400 years ago, Bill Wilson. Yeah, well, I um, I don't mind being anachronism to a certain extent. Um, of course, the one thing that I would point out is that if everything is beautiful, nothing is beautiful uh, because you have to have right. something. And it's like saying, is something big? Well, I don't know. Compared to what? An ant is really not very big compared to an elephant, but compared to uh, a proton, yeah, it's kind of huge. 
again, some of this I'm playing devil's advocate. Some of this is my opinion. I'm not particularly, I'm, I'm not afraid to share my opinion. And if people disagree, that's that's okay. Again, trying to wrap my head around a lot of this, when I do hear people say things like, well, um, you know, beauty is only in the eyes of the, of the beholder. Well, then you have no standard. And with no standard, then nothing is beautiful. And nothing has meaning. If everything is amazing, nothing is amazing. If everything is wonderful, nothing is wonderful. Oh, that's far too logical. Nah. Bill. See, people don't think. People think emotionally. They don't think yeah, logically. Really. <laughs> uh, and, and let me ask you this, because this plays along with this about body shaming, uh, so it, and it you know mostly usually goes along with uh, body shaming people who are obese. Um, now, I'm not talking about being cruel or vicious or anything like that. I'm not talking about that at all. But I am posing the question, what's wrong with body shaming? Um, you know, I appreciate back when I was a kid, some of my friends who might would point out, you know, what you're wearing just really looks dumb. Now, that was their way of they weren't articulate enough to be able to say, you know, what you're wearing makes you look. Uh, heavier than you really are, lighter than you really are. You look like a bean pole, and you know, or, or you look fat. Um, it, it or it it brings out your least attractive qualities instead of uh, bringing out your best equal best qualities. What's wrong with a little bit of body shaming, telling people, you know what, that's just not attractive. It just makes you not look good. I think what you, you said it well yourself right there. You said a little okay. bit. And I think that uh, we're talking about degrees here. And, you know, there's advice and there's shame. <laughs> like advice is that shirt doesn't match those pants. That, that's sort of like, you know, advice. And it, it's done in a, in a caring sort of way. I want to help you. Whereas body shaming, I think, is a, on a different end of the spectrum where, you know, it's just you're making fun of somebody. You're just, you know, belittling them. So there's a there's a, um, a heart issue perhaps. Uh, concern for the other in one, and there's not a concern for the other. But yeah, I think that there's a, there's a heart issue on that. Okay, and you know, actually, that's a really good uh, place to end this because that's where both you and I are is a heart issue. We really care about people, and and this was not done in any way yeah. other than to show our love and concern for people. So, David, thank Absolutely. you so so very much for being on the program today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed the conversation All right, with you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, think about subscribing. You can also check out my podcast at thearthropologist.podbean.com.